turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. It's like Russ Claybrook read from John chapter 10. He gave you the whole context. We're only going to look at a little portion of this, not the whole entire thing. But I want to begin by just pointing out a few things here that many of us old folks, I call myself an old folk now because I'm over 60, <laughs> but some people call seniors over 50. So those over 50, or way over 50, or hovering near 50, are quite confused, I think, about how we should present ourselves in public. We're unsure about the kind of image we're projecting and whether we should conform to the fashions that designers in New York and California and Paris inflict upon the world. And uh, so a sincere study was made one time of the situation. Here are the results. The following combinations do not go together. Okay, they don't. A nose ring and bifocals. They don't go together. Spiked hair and bald spots. Now, a pierced tongue and dentures. Forget that one. Uh, mini skirts and support hose. Ankle bracelets and corn pads. Speedos and cellulite. It's a good one. A belly button ring and gallbladder surgery scars. Unbuttoned disco shirts and a heart monitor. And midriff shirts and midriff bulbs. That doesn't go together well at all. Bikinis and liver spots, forget that one. Short shorts and varicose veins. Here's a good one, final one. Inline skates and a walker. (laughs) So please, the article says, keep these basic guidelines foremost in your mind when you shop for your fashion. That may be a cute comparative list emphasizing the complete disparity of certain cultural trends and uh, acceptable personal application of those things. But in today's text, Jesus brings us face to face with another blatant contrast, the character and the heart of a true shepherd versus a false shepherd. Okay, that's in John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 11 through 18 this morning. Uh, They've already been read. I'm not going to read through the whole context again, but I will unpack them one verse at a time. So there were numerous differences between Jesus' world and our world today, as you can well imagine. Uh, The culture of the first century Israel was far removed from 21st century America, yet even in the midst of these differences, there are many, many similarities. And the greatest of these, in my estimation, is that the basic needs of the human soul have never changed. Do you agree to that? Every one of us hurts in some way. Every person within range of my voice has struggled with sin. There's not one among us who has not felt alone, estranged from God's presence, and in need of direction for our lives. Every one of us longs for peace and for wholeness for love and acceptance, no, not one of us would deny our need for safety, for example, and security. We see that now. In our marriages, in our homes, in our communities, and in our world, we want safety, we want security. 
All of us hunger for truth and spiritual satisfaction, and we thirst for fulfillment and significance. There's not one among us who does not desire freedom from fear. Amen? Release from our stress and healing for our brokenness. Is there one of us here who does not secretly long for the ability to say with confidence, I am satisfied. I have everything I need. You ever wonder how God may feel about people with problems? Because every one of us has them. Does he ever get tired of hearing us complain? What is his limit of personal sympathy? Does he have one? Would he simply like to fix us and be done with it all? Well, the Old and New Testaments have something to say about that. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 explains just how Jesus views us. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at that verse uh, a few times. Matthew 9, 36 talks about how Jesus feels about people like you and me racked with problems, racked and wrecked with problems. Matthew 9, 36 says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, when I brought this verse up, I talked about and honed in on the idea about compassion. But today we're going to hone in on the idea about people being like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the prophet Isaiah also issued this prophetic promise to the nation of Israel, which spills over unto us as Christ followers. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11, the prophet writes and says, Like a shepherd, he, meaning God, will lead and tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, that's a hope-filled promise to every single one of us, wouldn't you say? Every one of us with problems. It is to me because I live in a world that is not very compassionate at times. And sometimes I'm not very compassionate. I live in a world that's not always dependable. Sometimes I'm not very dependable. I live in a world that's not overly protective of my life, my family, or my friends. I live in a world whose leaders, no matter how moral, spiritual, or praiseworthy that they may seem, will eventually let us down. You and I live in a world which is not always good and which not always cares, which raises, at least within me, a very real and personal need. In an indifferent world, my insecure soul needs a reliable savior, an infallible shepherd. One that is invincible, one that's inviolable, one that's impregnable, one that's immutable, one that is indestructible, one who is impeccably good. And in John chapter 10 and verses 11 through 18, Jesus draws an intense contrast between the spiritual leaders of his day and himself. Throughout the history of Israel, most of their spiritual shepherds had fallen far short of faithfulness. As one man wrote, they were ruthless, godless, and clueless about the real needs of their people. 
Well-known prophets, for example, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel had much to say about the deplorable state of God's people and the negligent attitudes of their so-called shepherds. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verses 1 and 2, you find that uh, these words, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 10 and 11. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They, all, they have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. You may recognize that verse as having been quoted by Paul in the New Testament in the book of Romans. And then in Ezekiel chapter 34, I think I referred to this a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking about Jesus being a shepherd, compassionate for the sheep. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Now contrast that with verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, it underline this, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Important. It's an important verse. Verse 12, as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, I so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Skip down to verse 15. I will, I, God says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. Skip down to verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, notice who's speaking. Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another and then I will set over them one shepherd. Underline that. My servant David. And he will feed them and he will feed them himself and he will be their shepherd. Now hold on to that background and hold on to those words that Ezekiel just 
prophesied for a moment. Having his blindness from birth healed by Jesus, an excited and awestruck man testified in John chapter 9 to his religious leaders that Jesus must surely be the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy that I just read. But the heartless and uncaring Pharisees, the shepherds of Israel, true to form, threw him out of the synagogue, the fold. They threw that blind man out. It is in this context and with this picture in mind that Jesus made an astounding claim. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that claim is as much for us today as it was for them. Because of the simple fact that in an indifferent world, my insecure soul needs an infallible shepherd. And Jesus is that shepherd. And here in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, he gives us the evidence. So let me just unpack that a little bit for you. The first thing is this. We find in verses 11 through 13, in the heart of the good shepherd, Jesus, there is no disparity. Look at those verses with me. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, and he flees because he is a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus literally says, when he said, I am the good shepherd, this is what the original language says, I am the shepherd, the good I am the shepherd, the good. And when Jesus used the term good, he wasn't just being linguistically descriptive. He was making an incredible claim. The word good here refers to something ideal, something intrinsically good from the inside out. That which is beautiful, that which is irresistibly attractive, impeccably fair, the highest ideal worthy of imitation. That's what the word good means in this context. And who is the only one who is inherently good without stain or spot or wrinkle? Someone tell me. Jesus. God himself, right? Good was a designation, if you remember back what we read in Ezekiel. Good was a designation reserved in the absolute sense for God alone. In a telling encounter with a rich young ruler, Jesus clarified what this word good really was truly about. In Mark chapter 10, in verses 17 and 18, we read these words. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to him like this. Why do you call me Good. No one is good except God alone. And by referring to himself as the shepherd, the good, the shepherd, the good one, Jesus was clearly making a claim to deity. 
If no one's good but God alone, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, in and of itself, literally, I am who I am. I am the shepherd. I am the good. I am God. In other words, call Jesus good, call Jesus God. And Jesus said it twice for emphasis. In verse 14, he said it again. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And how could he call himself good? Because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As the saying goes, beauty is as beauty does, right? The true shepherd exemplifies the epitome of self-sacrifice. He's in it for the sheep, so much so that he's willing to die for them. Now, think about it. Think about different people in the scriptures. Moses, for example, dedicated his life to shepherding his father-in-law Jethro's flocks and then later the wandering sheep of Israel, right? David risked his life as a shepherd, delivering the sheep from the lion and the bear. And from Goliath, delivered Israel from Goliath the Philistine. But only Jesus laid down his life, not only for the sheep, but instead of the sheep. Think about that one. Put that in the front of your brain. Think about it for, and hold on to that one because we're going to return to that at the end of this message. He gave his life not for the sheep alone, but instead of the sheep. Even unto death, the good shepherd is in it for the sheep. And then, Jesus says, false shepherds are in it for themselves. That's the disparity that you see. But in Jesus, there's no disparity. False shepherds are in it for themselves. Verses 12 and 13 says that. The hired hand, not the owner of the sheep, doesn't care about the sheep. The false shepherds are known by their blatant indifference to the sheep. Throughout the Old Testament, God pronounced scathing judgments upon the false prophets and the priests who were indifferent toward the people. The recurring theme there is that they were lazy and they were greedy and they were unconcerned that they were in the shepherding business for what they could get out of it rather than what they could give to it. And Jesus outlined with precision exactly what they were and what they were not in this text of John 10. He said they were not called. Jesus identified them as hirelings in verse 12. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. They were not called. Jesus identified them as hired hands. They worked solely for the pay. There was no sense of spiritual calling, only personal gain, which Peter clearly warns against to all of us, and we all come under that conviction. I come under that conviction. Any, any pastor, I think, that is, is trying to operate in the sphere of what Jesus called them to is under conviction when we read these kinds of verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses, verses, verses 1 to 4. To the elders among you, read. To the pastors among you. I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be. 
not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. They were not called, Jesus was pointing out. Secondly, they were not confirmed. Jesus said that they were simply not shepherds. They were hired hands. And they were not committed, Jesus points out. Why? Because they were not the owners, he says. Therefore, they were not concerned for the welfare of the sheep, as verse 13 points out. The proof is indifference. How can you tell the difference between a shepherd and a hired hand? It's the difference between investment and indifference. The shepherd takes interest in the sheep and invests himself and his life in them. Someone who is simply doing the job does precisely what Jesus declares here. They acknowledge the danger. Behold the wolf coming. They know about the wolves, but they actually see the enemies. But then they abdicate their responsibility. It says they leave the sheep and they leave the sheep to fend for themselves. They abandon the flock. It says he flees. They flee and they flee because they are flat out unconcerned. They don't at all care for the sheep. Bad principles, bad practices. The result is that the enemy snatches, scatters the sheep, and unfortunately, that happens all too often. So, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, why don't we take better heed of the Scriptures? Why don't we believe it when the Word of God issues a warning such as the Apostle Paul gave to the Ephesian elders as he parted from them, cautioning them to shepherd the sheep of their church carefully? In Acts chapter 20, in verses 28 to 30, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. See, what Paul's pointing out to the Ephesian elders here as he leaves is that there's danger from the outside, but there's also danger from within. And you've got to know and be discerning of both. It happens. It happens all the time. A charismatic communicator moves into the church, starts a small group, recruits adherents, pulls people away from the fellowship and ultimately away from the church. These are the thieves and the robbers and the false shepherds that Jesus identified in chapter 10. I remember years ago when I was a young pastor here that somebody actually tried to do that in this church. But luckily, we were discerning of that and stopped it in its tracks. But I'll tell you what, that that was an eye-opener to me that somebody would actually insert themselves into a body like this and then begin to start pulling people out. That was happening in Jesus' day, even amongst the religious community. They would travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when they did, they would make them twice as much a son of hell as, as they were. Jesus, Jesus pronounced woes on the Pharisees for that in Matthew 23. In this section of Matthew 23 where there's seven woes pronounced upon those false shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees proved that they did not care for the sheep but rather exploited them for their own ends. And that's why when Jesus comes into the scene here in chapter 10, he's pointing out the fact to them that I'm I'm the shepherd that you need to follow. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, the good 
and he will go to the absolute extreme to rescue his own. He does care. He's the owner. He's invested. It is not his desire that even one of his sheep should perish. Years ago, some friends of mine took their two young children to Disney World in Florida. And on one of the days that they were there, it was particularly crowded. Any of you taking your kids to Disney World in Florida? You know how crowded that it used to be able to get, right? On one of the days that they were there, it was particularly crowded, people everywhere. And it was on that day that every parent's nightmare materialized for them. Somehow they got separated from their beautiful young seven-year-old daughter in a crowded Disney world. And in a split second, she was out of their sight, swallowed up in a sea of thousands of people. Now, immediately upon realizing their daughter was lost, mom and dad began calling her name, searching all over the place for her. Dad retraced their steps while mom sought the aid of a ride attendant who seemed unsure, unprepared, and unable to find the child. Panic ensued. Tears came. Anger, frustration, cries for help, more tears, minutes passed which seemed like hours to them. And finally in what felt like an eternity yet was in reality less than 15 minutes. If you've been in that situation, you kind of know how that transpires, right? Dad emerged from the crowd with the daughter safe and secure while mom melted into the pavement. That family will never forget that day. And yet in that experience, they had an inside view of the Savior's love for his own and the lengths that the Savior will go to rescue even one of us. The picture of the good shepherd is the exact opposite of the picture of the hired hand. He's not confused, but steadfast. He's not unprepared, but ready, willing, and able to seek and to save that which was lost, no matter what the cost, He is invested. He's not indifferent. Luke chapter 15 talks about that quite a bit. Um, I don't really have to read the whole chapter to you, but just to point out, if you remember Luke 15, it's all a lost and found chapter, right? Um, All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to him and listening to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you see their mindset right at the very beginning. Fact of the matter is the Pharisees didn't care about these sinners. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he told a parable about a lost coin, same thing. And then about a prodigal son, same idea. Jesus searches for the lost. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And the absolute extreme to which Jesus would go is identified five times in this text. Jesus emphatically repeated the fact that as the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. He died so that we could have an abundant life, not an abandoned life. Right? We are blood-bought and sold purchased by Christ himself. You can see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. And you and I would do well to remember that when another shepherd 
attempts to lure us away, we have a good shepherd, one who is concerned about us. And in these times, I'm telling you right now, in these times when, when people are looking for security out there in the world, there, there are a lot of shepherds that are going to be seizing this opportunity. And I'm not talking about shepherd shepherds like we talk about shepherds. I'm talking about people out there that will seize the opportunity to gather people to themselves. And the church has an opportunity to mimic the good shepherd and gather them to him. In an indifferent world, my insecure soul needs a reliable Savior, an infallible shepherd. So in the heart of this Savior, there's no disparity. Secondly, in this text, we find in verses 14 and 15, in the heart of the good shepherd, we find mutual intimacy. Look with me at those two verses. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I would venture, I, I would ask the question, how many new moms are hearing this message right now? But how many of you think that you could immediately recognize your baby's cry in a crowded room as a new mom? You know, if you have children, that you can do that, right? Then you know something about Jesus' character as a good shepherd. How many of you think that your baby would recognize your voice in a crowded room? Then you know something about a sheep's character, which is part of Christ's fold. He knows us, and we know him if we're Christ's, intimately. And the word know here indicates full knowledge, experiential knowledge, knowledge of acquired perception and deep understanding. In other words, it abides in us. The relationship between Jesus and his followers is is one of such complete knowledge and intimacy that he compares it to the relationship that he has with his own father. How close do you think that relationship was? How intimate is it? Well, let me just list a couple of things in verse 14. Jesus says, he knows our name. He knows our name. I love this story. I want to share it with you just to illustrate this fact about a man named Bubba. I shared this at my father's funeral because my father was so connected to so many people in this world that this this just smacked of the kind of character that he had. But Bubba was bragging to his boss one day. He says, you know, I know everyone that there is to know. Just name someone, anyone, and I know them. You know people like that? They're connected with everybody, right? Tired of his boasting, his boss called his bluff. Okay, Bubba, tell me, do you know Tom Cruise? Oh, yeah, sure. Tom and I are old friends. I can prove it. So Bubba and his boss fly out to Hollywood. They knock on Tom Cruise's door. And sure enough, Tom Cruise shouts out, Bubba, great to see you, buddy. You and your friend, you come right in and join me for lunch. And although impressed, Bubba's boss is still a little skeptical about the whole thing. After they leave Cruz's house, he tells Bubba that he thinks Bubba's just sh- know- knowing Cruz, Tom Cruz, was just lucky. No, no, just name anyone else, Bubba says. President Donald Trump. His boss quickly retorts. Oh, yeah, Bubba says, I know him. Let's fly out to Washington. 
And off they go. And at the White House, Trump spots Bubba on the tour and motions him and his boss over saying, Bubba, what a surprise. I was just on my way to a meeting, but you and your friend come on in. Let's have a cup of coffee first and catch up. Well, the boss right now is very shaken, okay? But he's still not totally convinced after they leave the White House grounds and he expresses his doubts to Bubba, who again implores him, go ahead, just name anybody else. So the boss thinks about it for a minute. He says, the pulp. Sure, says Bubba. My folks are from South America, Argentina, and I've known Pope Francis for a long time. Old George, yeah. So off they fly to Rome. Bubba and his boss are assembled with the masses in Vatican Square. And Bubba says, you know what? This is never going to work. I can't catch the Pope's eye among all these people. I'll tell you what. I know all the guards, so... I'll just go upstairs and I'll come out on the balcony with the Pope. How's that sound? And he disappears into the crowd and he heads toward the Vatican. Sure enough, a half an hour later, Bubba emerges on the balcony with the Pope. By, by the time Bubba returns, he finds that his boss has had a heart attack and he's surrounded by a bunch of paramedics and working his way to his boss's side, Bubba asks him, what happened? His boss looks up and he says, I was doing fine until you and the Pope came out on the balcony and the man sitting next to me says, who sat on the balcony with Bubba? <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't care how insignificant you think you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he knows you. He knows you. And he knows you by name. He's called you by name. And that name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And not only that, but one day you and I will receive a new name. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, I don't know if that's what he was getting at, but as overcomers, I think, you know, we are given new names, but... I get the picture of pet names, right? Like names known only to God and us because of our relationship. Just like the names your father and your mother gave to you, maybe. Or like the, the one your husband and wife or your wife calls you and only you, right? You have those names? Unique and personal ones? Some of you might want to share them, some of you might not. And no one else can articulate them in just the way that your spouse does, right? Most of you probably have those names. I mean, I used to call my daughter Pumpkin Pie. My, my son, my youngest son, I used to call him Little Man. My dad called my mom Pea Soup, of all the things. <laughs> in fact, it's on her license plate to this day. I had a friend who called his girlfriend Poopy. I don't know what that was all about, but... That some of your some of you also have other names, right? That you've been called ones you never wanted, names that hurt you, names like geek, or loser, or retarded, or fat, 
or divorced or you're a failure. See, those names hurt. And they hang around our thoughts forever. But the name God gives us heals us. Listen to these truthful words. The nation of Israel one day will have a new name. In Isaiah chapter 62, in verses 2 and 3, the nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Those are awesome verses. In his book, When God Whispers Your Name, Max Lucado unveils this wonderful thought. He says, quote, the only name that matters is the one God has reserved just for you. Isn't it incredible to think that God has saved a name just for you? Imagine what that implies. Apparently, your future is so promising that it warrants a brand new title. There is more to your life than you ever thought the best is yet to be, unquote. Jesus knows his own. He knows our name. Secondly, he knows our nature. He knows our nature. God knows me, says Nancy Guthrie in her book, The One-Year Book of Hope. God knows me and he knows it all. He knows my public persona and my private pettiness. He knows what lights the fire of my soul and what dampens the flame within me. He knows how I struggle, even now, between self-pity and self-sacrifice. He knows my past as well as my future, and he sees me more clearly than I see myself. Oh, how painful and at the same time pleasurable it is to be fully known. He knows me to the core, and what he sees is not pretty. I'm infected by sin, but because he is the good shepherd, he has done what is required to remedy this fatal malady. He laid down his life for me, unquote. So he knows our name, he knows our nature, he also knows our needs. Again, Nancy Guthrie writes, David recognized that being content in the good shepherd's care is not defined by having our physical, financial, or material needs met at every juncture, but rather by our dependence on his loving care. How did David recognize that? Well, we have this timeless psalm that he wrote that shows us just how much David understood it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for God is with me. Right? You're riding your staff. You comfort me. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy, loving kindness, right, shall follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knows our needs. And the most beautiful thing is, is we know his voice. We know his voice Verses 3 and 4 of John chapter 10. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. 
And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I love verse 28, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand, or my hand for that matter. So do you know his voice? Can you discern the difference between your own reasoning, your own rationalization, and justifying voice which seeks to assuage your human desires? The difference between that and maybe the devil's soothing, seductive voice which attempts to lead you into sin or lead me into sin, or the still small voice of the Holy Spirit which guides us toward the truth. Can you discern between that? Have you learned to recognize the intricate differences? Listen to the words of one author. He says, if you are having trouble taking in all of this, let me ask you. Have you had this experience? Think about this now. Something happens, something bad happens. And you start telling yourself what a jerk you are. Have you had that experience? Do you really think the source of that kind of thought is just you? Do you think it's God? I mean, think about it this way. Who would take the most delight in making a statement like that? Who would take the most delight in it? Your own reasoning or rationalization might sound like this. Oh, it wasn't really a sin. I didn't really affect anyone but me. The voice of the Spirit in the same situation might say, how did this glorify God? Was it the best choice for you in light of his glory? It was sin. Repent of it, confess it, accept his forgiveness and move on. The enemy, however, would say this, you did it again, you lech, you're hideous. God cannot use you. That's the voice of the enemy. Friends, when the voice moves from you did a bad thing to you are a bad person or you are a weak person or you are an ugly person or you are a prideful person, it's not likely, it's likely not that the voice of the good shepherd, although he might say things that confront us, he doesn't say you are a bad person if you're in me. That's the voice of the enemy. How well do you discern the shepherd's voice? How attentive are you to his leading and prompting? John Ortberg says it's, it's one thing to speak to God. It's another thing to listen to God. When we listen to God, we receive guidance. So why are we so often ambivalent about the notion of God speaking to us? And I love this. Why should God's end of the line be equipped with a receiver but no mouthpiece? Right? That's old school metaphor for those of you that remember what a phone looks like. <laughs> Not just a cell phone. In George Bernard Shaw's play, St. Joan, one of the characters asks Joan of Arc why the voice of God never speaks to him as she claims it speaks constantly to her. And the voice speaks to you all the time, she says. You just fail to listen. 
I believe that one reason why we fail to hear God speak is that we are not attentive. We suffer from what we might call spiritual mindlessness. As we fill our brains with all kinds of stuff today, and we don't have time to listen to what God's saying. Might be a great practice for most of us to write the word listen in big letters on a file card and tape it to the dashboard of our car or on the computer screen. Carry it around in our pocket to remind us to be attentive. Listen. Listen to God. What's he saying? Because friends, if you're, if you're one of Christ's sheep, it is a relationship of mutual intimacy. He calls us by name. He loves us unconditionally. He cares for our needs. He lays down his life so that we might not perish but have life to the full. And he never, ever, ever stops seeking us. So in the heart of the good shepherd lies the desire for unity. That's in verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Unity. It's not just unity within like a denomination or a, or a congregation like we have here, but it goes beyond that. It's unity with other believers who may not be of the same denomination. I read this some time ago. I came upon a fellow on a trip who was carrying a Bible. Are you a believer, I asked him. Yes, he said excitedly. I've learned you can't be too careful. Virgin birth, I asked. I accept it. Deity of Jesus, no doubt. Death of Christ on the cross, he died for all people. Could it be that I was face to face with a Christian, the author says? Perhaps. Nonetheless, I continued my checklist. Status of man, sinner in need of grace. Definition of grace, God doing for man what he can't do for himself. Return of Christ, imminent. Bible, inspired. Church, body of Christ. Oh, I started to get excited, the author says. Conservative or liberal? He was getting interested too. Conservative. My heart began to beat faster. Heritage, Southern Congregationalist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationalist, Triune Convention. That was mine, he says. Branch, premillennial, post-trib, non-charismatic, King James, one cup communion. My eyes misted. I only had one other question, he says. Is your pulpit wooden or fiberglass? Fiberglass, he responded. I withdrew my hand and stiffened my neck. Heretic, I said, and I walked away. That's tongue-in-cheek. But Christ wants unity, right? Christ's passion is for his kingdom to be populated with men and women from every tribe and nation. It's not exclusively reserved for the Jewish nation. Did you know that? As the Messiah, he was interested in all who would answer his call to salvation, and he still is. Does that mean that Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists will all be part of God's kingdom? His fold? Not unless they come through Jesus. They must hear his voice. He must know them, and they must know him. No one comes into the fold without going through the door. We just saw that earlier in chapter 10. 
Jesus is the door. Reread verses 1 through 10. There is only one door. There is only one shepherd. Jesus is the only one worth following. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who has given his life for the sheep. In verse 16, reads like the end of the book of Acts, as Paul declared to the Jewish listeners, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. And thank God that it was, because you and I wouldn't be sitting here today with the Bible in front of us talking about Jesus if it wasn't true. Amen? Just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, he said. And although that unity is not always visibly apparent to us, and sometimes it's not practically experienced among us, ultimately there is one flock with one shepherd. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, Ezekiel said, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord. Finally, and I know this has been long, but in the heart of the good shepherd, there is humble authority. That's the last verses here, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus did not die a martyr. He died as a willing substitute. When he said, I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again, it was tantamount to saying that I am God. For God alone has the power to take life and to give life. But he did not view this equality as something to be grasped, right? As someone has said, true authority, authority from God is not afraid of challengers, makes no defense, and cares not one whit if it must be dethroned. And that's what Jesus did when he became a man and he went to the cross and died in our place. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus not only laid down his life for us, but instead of us, as I said earlier, he in place of us. No one took it from him. He voluntarily laid it down. So not only is he the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The shepherd literally becomes the sheep. Jesus became a man. The sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, it was the sheep that were sacrificed on the shepherd's behalf to cleanse them. Here, the good shepherd willingly lays down his life as an act of self-sacrifice to cleanse them. Let me just wrap it up with this poignant true story. In a sermon called, Who Really Killed Jesus? Vic Pence told the following story. He said, years ago, I served in, an eastern, in eastern Washington state. A man told of driving his Volkswagen one day and being forced to stop for a large flock of sheep crossing the road. And as he waited and he watched the sheep crossing in front of him, the phrase, Lamb of God, kept drifting through his mind. And on impulse, impulse he leapt from his car and he asked the shepherd, what does Lamb of God mean to you as a shepherd? 
And at first the sheep herder was taken aback, but he saw the man was sincere. So he said, I know exactly what the Lamb of God means. Each year at lambing time, he said, there are lambs and ewes that don't make it. Inevitably, one of, on one side of the field, there's a ewe whose lamb has died. She's full of milk, but she won't nourish any other lamb that doesn't recognize her as her own. Inevitably, on the other side of the field is a lamb whose mother has died. The lamb is going to starve because no other ewe will accept it and feed it. So the shepherd takes the dead lamb and he slits its throat and pours its blood over the body of the living lamb. And the ewe recognizes that blood and accepts and welcomes and nurses that living lamb. And through the gift of the blood of the lamb that has died, the living lamb is recognized and accepted and nourished and saved. That, he said, is the lamb of God. Pence says, you are here in the fold of God this morning because you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now God looks at us through rose-colored glasses, blood-tinted glasses, and sees us as his beloved children. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd who lives for us continually. He's the chief shepherd who calls us, and he's the guardian shepherd who saves us forever. Now, I don't know about you, but in an indifferent world, my insecure soul needs a reliable savior like that, an infallible shepherd like that. And so does yours. So you make your decision. Who will you follow? Who will you hear? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand because I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for such a great truth that you are the good shepherd. And I pray, Almighty, Almighty God, that each person that is listening to this message today will receive him as the good shepherd, recognizing that there is only one true shepherd, and it's Jesus Christ. He will never let us down. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he will give us eternal life if we are covered by his blood. May we continue to walk in faith, the faith that is given to us by your grace, by your mercy. You are Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to follow you every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.